0: It's good to be together. I want to say welcome, and my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, just so glad that you're with us for our worship time this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bible uh, right now to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. That's where we're going to be starting today. If you need a Bible, there are some that look like this on the seats in front of you, and you're going to need a hard copy today, again, whether it's one of these, or follow along in your own copy, or on the app in your phone, because we're not going to have the words on the screen, and again, that's not because we hate technology, but because we want to just be in the habit of opening up God's Word for ourselves, so we all together can have an open Bible as we go through 1 Peter. So I'm going to read for us our verses for the day, and then we'll jump in. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray again together. Father, we do thank you, as Steve prayed, Lord, for the incredible honor and privilege it is to know you and to come before you in prayer that you listen to us. It's an incredible gift. And God, we thank you for your word and... We thank you for this time we have together to jump into it and study it and and hear your voice through Scripture. And so we pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you, Holy Spirit, would would help us. Would you come and, and, and teach us and open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear and to understand what you have for us today. We love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well... Recently, a book came out titled Mission Drift, where the authors argued that organizations naturally, over time, start to drift away from their original mission and the reason that they were founded in the first place. And this happens over time and sometimes slowly, and it's not necessarily due to ill will or bad intentions, but it's a a natural Occurrence, And they use the example of a well-known academic institution that began with an original mission statement that said this. I'll just quote it for us. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Again, this university's mission statement was to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. So you can tell from that mission statement that this was a distinctly Christian university with the purpose of training people for ministry or for making Jesus Christ known in the world, applying the gospel to all of life. Uh, But this university was Harvard University. And maybe many of you have heard that before or know that Harvard and Yale and Ivy League schools have Christian roots and a foundation in beginning as training centers for for ministry for God to be glorified and for Jesus Christ to be known in the world. But today those institutions look very different. And although they are still held in incredibly high regard academically with a world a global reputation for their academics, they've they've strayed far from their Christian roots. They've experienced mission drift. And so using this example and others, the book talks about how it's possible for organizations and churches to experience mission drift and to shift from their original goals and purposes and to really lose sight of why they exist at all. And so we're continuing our Life in Exile series that we're uh, walking through the letter of 1 Peter with just a little bit at a time each week, verse by verse through this fabulous book of the New Testament, and we're understanding and looking at what does it mean to follow Jesus on the fringes. Right? Because the Christians that Peter is writing to in the first century were living on kind of the outskirts of society in a social way. They were not at home in their world. They were not at home in their communities. And that wasn't an issue of geography, as if God needed to scoop them up and give them a new zip code. But because of their commitment to Christ, they found themselves as strangers in their own communities because of their convictions, their beliefs, their way of life what was out of sync with the world around them. And we today, in a lot of ways, can relate with that identity as an exile, as a stranger in a strange place. And so we have to consider, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this world, in exile? In order for us to thrive, we really have to understand who we are as a church and why we exist. And if we lose sight of our identity as a church, if we lose sight of our mission as a church, then we too can experience mission drift. And so the text we're looking at this morning is going to unpack for us these incredibly profound and exciting realities of who we are as a church and why we exist. And so we saw it in verses 9 and 10 already a little bit as we're getting started. You know, Lee did a great job last week of looking at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 2. We were gone in Seattle, and so it was good to have Lee preach. It's always encouraging and challenging when he shares the word. I got to listen to the podcast while we were driving back from Seattle, and this was, was great. And maybe you notice at the end of those verses, towards verse 8, Peter says specifically that there are going to be people who reject Jesus and want nothing to do with God and, and disobey him. And that's not necessarily a surprise uh, then or now, but then he he turns back to his audience, to the Christians that he's writing to. And you notice how verse 9 begins with, but you. And so immediately there's this sharp contrast between those who reject Jesus and those who are following Jesus, the, the church. And he wants them to know, here's who you are as a church, Remember your identity as God's people. And so he walks through in verse 9, you know several statements there describing them. And these statements are all rich in Old Testament imagery and often uh, were found in the Old Testament, used previously to describe the people of God. And so Peter is saying, hey, what was true of the Old Testament people of God is true of you today, church, in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to walk through them together. Look again at verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen people. He begins by using the language of being chosen. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you remember the first week of this series, we looked at what does it mean that we are elect exiles? Chapter 1 uses that language, the, the doctrine of election which simply teaches that we belong to God not because of our own choice or our own decision alone, but that actually before we move towards God, God moved toward us. We don't belong to him by accident, but God called us to follow him and to know him and to be in relationship with him. And so we are a chosen people and that truth should be incredibly liberating when we realize that the way god chooses is different from the way that we choose because when we choose things when we make choices it's usually because the thing that we choose is lovely or desirable there's there's something about it that draws us to it. Think about when you are picking teams in sports. Can anyone think back to elementary school, PE, and you got to pick teams? Who are the kids that get picked first? It's the fast ones or the athletic ones, the one with a lot of skill, right? Or when you go to the grocery store and you have to pick out some produce, pick out some fruit. You pick the fruit that is Shaped the right way, has the right firmness, the right color. You don't pick the one that's kind of like bruised up and all mushed and, and nasty sitting on the bottom, right? Or if you watch The Bachelorette, <laughs> which I do not, full disclosure. No, but if you do, that's okay. But how does The Bachelorette choose her suitor? She picks, I'd imagine the, the man that is the most charming, attractive, Is the best personality. There's something about him that she is drawn to. And so that's how we choose, right? We see what is desirable and we go for it. But how does God choose? Does God evaluate things the same way? If we look back to the Old Testament, we're going to have this verse up on the screen, I believe, for you, so you don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God's speaking to his people there. In verse 6, he says this, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. continues, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. He goes on. So you see what he's saying. It, it was not because you, as a nation, as a people, were, were more in number. It was not because you were a bigger nation than all the rest, or a stronger nation than all the rest, or more deserving than all the other peoples on the earth, because you actually were the, the fewest of all people. You were the least likely to be picked by the team captain, as it were, but. It says, "Is because the Lord loves you. That's why He chose you. He, he loves you because He loves you. It's that simple. He has chosen to set His love on you. And do you realize how freeing that kind of love is? It's not because of anything within you or within you as a people that God." loves you. It's not because you were more qualified or you somehow earned it more than other people. God simply chose to love us and give us himself as a gift. Now think about that in the context of other relationships. I mean, have you ever been asked by your spouse, baby, why do you love me? could be a dangerous question right and maybe in response you would be tempted to say well I love you because it is because you are so funny you have a great sense of humor or you have a a fabulous bushy beard that I love snuggling up next to so much or you have a great figure, or a a great outlook on life. You're just so kind, or you're just so positive. I just like your personality. I like being around you. So we have this tendency, again, to, to put our love in the context of it's something about you, or something that you do. And certainly, there are things about our spouse that we are drawn to, but if the reason for our love is rooted in something that they do or do not do, in things that may or may not change, then we put an incredible weight on their shoulders. Right? Because all those qualities could come and go. Our appearance changes, our personalities can change over the years. Sometimes we can fall into depression or challenging seasons where we no longer have maybe the kindness or the joy or the, the humor that we once had. Had, And so, if our love is based on those things, then it's subject to change. But God says to us, and really we should say to one another, especially in marriage, I love you because I love you. Right? It's not dependent upon any of your qualities that may or may not change. I love you because I have simply chosen to love you. That's what Peter's saying is true of God's love for us, for the people of God in the Old Testament and the church today. God says, I love you because I love you. You're a chosen people. And so we can rest at night knowing that God's love for us is not based on our performance or our loveliness or our earning it, but it's simply because he loves us. And this is really echoed in verse 10 if you see it. The text continues, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we are the people of God. We are the people who have received the love of God, who have received the mercy of God, his compassion on us. He did not leave us as we were, dead in sin and lost and separated from him. No, the message of the gospel is that God came to us to rescue us and save us. Not that we earned it or deserved it or worked for it, but God in his grace gave us the gift of life and forgiveness of sins and salvation in Jesus Christ. New life. His spirit in us new hearts, reconciliation with the God who loves us. And so before we get too far, again, we have to realize that this relationship that we enjoy with God, both individually and collectively, is only possible through the grace of God shown in Jesus Christ. And so even though the name of Jesus is not explicitly mentioned in these short verses we look at, Jesus is still the hero of this passage. Because all of the blessings that we enjoy of salvation, being the people of God, reconciled to God, forgiven of sins, given new life, made alive both now and forever, all of these things come to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter continues, verse 9, You're a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, he says next. Now, this can be hard for us today because we don't always have associations with royalty or priests, uh, for that matter. But those concepts can be a little bit removed from our experience. But in the ancient world and in the first century, being of a royal lineage was an immense honor. It was an incredible privilege that the majority of people would never enjoy. In fact, it was something usually that you were born into. Not as much something that you become or aspire to later. And so it wasn't like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be royalty. Well, too bad. It doesn't work that way. You know, it's better change uh, your expectations now. But for us to so think about it, if you're, someone in your family became uh, maybe the president, and maybe that's the closest association that we today have as, as Americans. If someone became the president in your family, you then would have this, this new status, this new power and privilege because of your relationship with them. That would mean good things for you. It would be an honor. And so as Christians, because we serve the king, Jesus, and we're a part of the king's family, we all have this royal status, this privilege that comes by being in the family of God. And he says, we're not just royalty, but we're royal priests. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the service, about what is the role of a priest in the world and for the people. But for now, let's just consider the special, again, privilege that a priest would enjoy, this connection with God that they would have, that would look different from the rest of the people. See, priests were able to enter the temple and the tabernacle in in ways that others could not. They would offer sacrifices and be in the presence of God in the way that others could not. And especially the high priest alone was allowed to enter the innermost part of the temple that was associated with the presence of God. He alone could be there. And so priests had this unique access to God, this privilege as they served him. So notice then what Peter's doing with that concept here. He's taking this Old Testament special privilege and role as a priest. And who's he applying it to? To the church. To every believer. He's saying, you are a priesthood. So it's not just that a select few of you are priests and have this special status. But the New Testament talks about the the priesthood of all believers, that anyone who is in Christ has this special privilege in relationship with God. And so that immediately removes some of the hierarchy that we associate with religion. And I see this misunderstood a lot, especially as a pastor, where people in my, friend, uh, in my family or friends of mine will say, well, because you're a pastor... you must be closer to God. You must have like a direct phone line to him where the rest of us are just like trying to get our prayers. I mean, I even heard this this weekend. We were up in Seattle for a wedding and they were worried that it was gonna rain on the wedding day. And so, as it does, right, in Seattle. Um, And we were there on the rehearsal day, the day before, and the family, again, these are Christian people, came up and said, hey, like, make sure you're praying for the rain to not come tomorrow. (laughs) And in my mind, I was like, you should be too. You know, like it's not just me. But you see the assumption there is that, well, you're a pastor, or as my dad would say, a a man of the cloth. And so you have this direct line where God will listen to you more. But that's not true. Right? All of us in Christ, anyone who is a believer, has the same access to the Father. The same access that the, the professional ministers do because we're all priests in christ it's an incredible privilege it says you're a chosen people you're a royal priesthood it goes on you're a holy nation now to be holy we've talked about this a good amount in the past few weeks right it means to be set apart I'm talking about separation from the rest and, and purity And so we're not going to talk about this as much because, again, we've covered it before in the previous weeks, but I do want to at least just point out that, again, we are called as the people of God to look different, to to live in a different way than, than the rest of the world lives, and therefore reveal who God is through our lives. We have this unique purpose. And think about this maybe with some of your household items. Do any of you have, like, special guest towels? like fancy towels that are extra fluffy, extra clean, that when you have visitors or people staying over, you get those towels out of the closet and make sure those are hanging so people can wash their hands on them, right? So if you were out doing some gardening or doing some work on your car and your hands got dirty, greasy, muddy, you would not come in the house and find those guest towels and get them all muddy and nasty, right? Because they're, they're special. They have a special purpose. They're not like everyday towels that you can just get muddy and wash. No, they have a, a special purpose. They're, they're set apart. They're holy. And so in the same way, we as the people of God are to be, to be different. We have this, this special purpose that God has for us as his people, or to be distinct. And sometimes, again, we think about holiness in a negative light, that it has to do with being condescending, or people who are holier than thou, or we maybe view holiness incompletely, where we think it's kinda supposed to be some air about us, this kinda abstract, lofty idea where we're, if we're holy, it means like we pray 12 hours a day, and we never get angry, and we just always have kind of this tranquil state. But, but that's not really the way the Bible explains holiness. I think sometimes that's a misunderstanding. Because if you look back, especially even to the Old Testament law in Leviticus, where it calls the people to be holy, it then explains it in really down-to-earth, everyday circumstances. And so even if you just go and read Leviticus 19, which you don't have to do now, but just write it down and go back to it. Look at the laws where God says, I want you to be holy, and here's what that means. In Leviticus 19, he'll mention things like honoring your parents and having an exclusive loyalty to God, being generous to the poor and needy. Talks about not lying, not stealing. Talks about loving your neighbor. Talks about not... Robbing people or committing fraud. Talks about economic integrity. Talks about care for those with disabilities. Talks about having integrity in the legal system and, and sexual integrity and purity. It talks about not mistreating uh, ethnic minorities or foreigners. Talks about being honest in business and trade and commerce. And so, holiness is not just some abstract, lofty concept of praying 12 hours a day and never getting angry. Holiness uh, is about the way that we live in all of our relationships, in all of our endeavors, whether it's in the home or in the marketplace or at work. God calls us to look different because of our commitment to him. That's all I'll say about holiness for now, but verse nine, carrying on, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and then God's special possession. Lastly, he declares that you are a people for his own possession. If we look back to the Old Testament where this language comes from, Exodus 19 comes to mind and it says this, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And so there's this idea that for God Everything belongs to him. All the earth is his. Every corner of the world, every mountain, river, ocean, every creature belongs to him because he is God. But you, he says, my people, you are my treasured possession. You belong to me in a special way. I relate to you in a way that's different from the way I relate to dogs and trees and rivers. You are my people. And so think about maybe, you again, just bringing it back to where we are, if you have a room in your house that is special, like maybe it's a man cave, or maybe it's like a special sitting room where you sip tea or read, or there's some place in your house that brings you unique joy, the whole house is yours, right? Like you, you belong there, you, everything is, every room in it is up to you to decide how to use it. But there's a special place in that house that brings you a special joy that's a unique possession of yours because of your relationship with it. And so God is saying that you, my people, though everything is mine, you are my treasured possession. I delight in you in a way that I do not delight in the rest of creation. I enjoy you in a way that I do not enjoy it. the rest of creation. It's different. And so through all of this, Peter's saying, church, people of God, this is who you are. Remember your identity. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I just want to be clear. That this, this is not some secret exclusive club that you have to work your way into or you have to like go to church for 20 years and make sure you, you give enough money and then this becomes true of you. These things are true of us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and that's offered to whoever would believe. Right? The invitation from God is extended to all people to trust in him and him alone for salvation, to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when that decision is made and your faith and trust is put in him, all of this can be true of you. And so I know sometimes we're here today and and people are wrestling with where they are spiritually and if they have made that decision to follow Jesus. And so the invitation is there for, for you today. And maybe you're here this morning, you're still wrestling with, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Do I really want to? Do I really believe that? Is this all really true? There's an opportunity coming up that I'd like to invite you to, to explore faith a little bit more, starting the Tuesday after Easter, uh, FBC is going to be running what's known as the Alpha Course. Maybe, yeah, there's a slide up there. Maybe you've heard about it before, but it's just a great opportunity for people with doubts, questions, maybe people who are skeptical of faith to come and ask their questions and talk openly. It's supposed to be a really safe place where people can come and explore the Christian faith. It's kind of a a 10-week thing where on consecutive Tuesday nights we'll meet, we'll have food, I'm going to be leading it, and it's just going to be a chance to watch a little bit of video content and then talk about Christianity, talk about our questions. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know if all of this is true of me. I don't know if I really put my faith in Jesus and experience everything that this is talking about today. Then again, this, this is for you, or maybe for a neighbor, maybe for a friend. We'd love to see you there. Again, that's starting Tuesday after Easter. We're going to have some more information and signups available in the weeks to come. But just wanted to put that on your radar. <clears throat> so it's critically important To remember who we are, our identity as the church to prevent mission drift. And I hope that you're encouraged by these things we've looked at so far. But there's more to the story. And maybe you noticed in verse 9, there's part of it that we haven't talked about quite yet. Because we have to ask, what now? We have this privilege of knowing God. But what is the purpose for our privilege I mean, we aren't intended just to stop and say, "Hey, we know God in this special way." Great, I'm just going to turn inward, focus on us. No, there is a purpose for our privilege, not just who are we, but why are we? Why are we here? What is our mission? So look back to verse nine. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's the purpose for our privilege, to declare the praises of God, to make him known. And this this phrase speaks of making God known in in our words and in our actions and how we live, showing people who he is, The idea here is to to publish something abroad, to widely distribute pamphlets almost of this truth that everyone might know and hear of the grace of God. And many of us know that the best way for something to spread is by word of mouth, recommendations to friends, right? If there's a restaurant you love or a show you love or some product you love, you probably tell people about it. It changed my life you got to try it. You're going to be glad you did. Go and check it out. I think about the way I talk about the TV show The Office. If you know me, if you know me, you've probably heard me talk about The Office. I love that TV show. And, and the way I talk about it, you would think that like I'm on payroll with them. Like, like they, I'm part of their PR department trying to spread the greatness of the shows. And you got to check it out you got to check it out. Go and watch it. Please, you'll be glad. But sometimes we talk about things that way, and it's like, do they hire you? Are they paying you to say this? You're like, no, I just love it so much. It's changed my life. Check it out. And so obviously, in an infinitely greater way, we're called to share the greatness of God, the glory of God, the praises of God, to let people know what he's done in our lives, The text says he's taken us from from darkness to light. He's rescued us from sin and death, given us eternal life, joy and a relationship with him and hope forever. So we have this purpose to make God known. And I want to circle back too to verse 9 where it talks about our role as a priesthood. We talked about the privilege of being a priest But we didn't as much talk about the role of a priest in connection with the the world or the people of Israel. They had a special responsibility to the people. Priests would teach the people God's ways and God's word. They would help people understand who God was and what he expected. Priests brought sacrifices to the altar before God. They interceded for the people. They represented the people before God. They led times of worship at the temple. They led times of confession. They taught others what right worship looked like. And lastly, they, they blessed the people. They were responsible for speaking these blessings over the people, asking God to bless the people. And so priests kind of stood in the middle between God and people. And they had this function. Christopher Wright, this author and scholar, explains it this way. So the job of priests, then, was to bring God to the people and bring the people to God. And so God says to Israel as a whole people, you will be for me to all the rest of the nations what our priests are for you. Through you, I will become known to the world, and through you, ultimately, I will draw the world to myself. So Peter's saying, hey, you Christians, you church have this responsibility as a priesthood to make God known to the world around you, to declare his praises, to represent God before a watching world and show them who he is. And if this is true, then it's really sad that many of us have slipped into or at times find ourselves in kind of an us versus them mentality. Where we think, well, we're the church, we're the insiders, and the outsiders are a threat. So we need to build up some higher walls and retreat deeper into our caves and not engage with the outside world. And we're going to treat people harshly if they're not Christians because of this or that. It's kind of us versus them. They're just combative mentality. But we see that based on this text that is horribly misguided and not at all what we should be about. In fact, rather than it being us against the world or us versus them, it should be us for them. Us for the world, that they would have life and know the goodness of God and the grace of God and be loved by him. And so we're not to just retreat and build up our walls and and go back into the bunker. We're to go out and love people in Jesus' name, sharing the gospel with our words and by how we live, showing people the God of grace and compassion. It's not us against the world. It's us for the world. So the God who made us who we are calls us to show the world who he is. And again, just briefly, how do we do that? By again, our words, sharing the gospel, thinking about opportunities. Do people know what God has done in our lives? Have we ever told people about Jesus or what difference he's made in our lives? This week, we can look for opportunities to share that with our words. But this also takes place as we live out our faith. So this week, we can look for opportunities to to show sacrificial love, to show up when people are in need. Maybe this week, there's going to be an opportunity for you to go out of your way and inconvenience yourself for the good of someone else. And by doing that, you will demonstrate the love and the grace of God. Let's look for opportunities to make God known. Amen. Right? We have this incredible privilege as the people of God But this privilege is for a purpose. God made us who we are to show the world who he is. And if we remember that, we can avoid mission drift as a church. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you for the privilege of being your children, your people. We thank you for your mercy and grace. Jesus, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. It's because of you that we are saved. It's because of you that we are reconciled to God, forgiven of sins, eternal life and hope, your spirit in us. So we praise you and thank you. We pray that you would send us out today on mission, Lord, to make you known, to declare your praises, and to love the world in your name. Amen.